Hi everyone, this is Matt Price, one of the hosts for the longest-running Dynasty-focused podcast on the planet, the DLF Dynasty Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you an episode packed with relevant and actionable Dynasty information that you can use to help win your league. When I'm in the host chair, we might even play a game or two. We are always open to topic suggestions, so if there's something you'd like to hear us discuss, please let us know. Thanks for listening. DynastyLeagueFootball.com and the DLF Family, a podcast. It's me, it's me, it's that old SFD, finally healthy and COVID-free. And this is the Super Flex Super Show. Man, like that, that I'm, I'm actually really lucky that that worked out. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, so this is, this episode has been a long time coming. One that I've been looking forward to for a very long time, and it got pushed back a week, uh, as if the the hiatus that we had here at the Superflex Super Show wasn't enough. Get pushed back a week because I'm I'm in the basement with freaking COVID, and uh, now I I get to uh, to bring on this dream guest uh, of mine. I get to bring on Scott Connor at Charles Chill FFB from Dynasty and Chill LLC. Uh, the Dynasty and Chill podcast, Manic and Chill on the DLF YouTube channel, and uh, Trades in Five as well. So, um, but <laughs> this is this is a, a an episode that I've looked forward to for a long time, Scott. And a big part of it is just I love the way your mind works. Um, and then so here I am with COVID brain. <laughs> we finally make this happen. And uh, I have no idea how this is going to go. Um, I'm just like foggy as hell. I'm sneezing and coughing and stuff. But hey, we're here. You're here. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, the Superflex dude actually nailed that intro. Nice. I mean, I'm sitting there going like, wait a second. Did you script that or <laughs> did you not? And I, and I have no idea if you practiced it, or, but it, it literally sounded like you came up with like, and that was a pretty pretty badass rhyme that you hit right at the beginning i'm like we're rolling so i'm glad to be here man you know listen to your stuff for a long time you know we we really have never done a a show together where it's just you and i we've we've been on some stuff together before but it's never been like you and i sit down and and hash out a show so i mean i think there's probably a lot we can talk about we've gone back and forth on twitter for years on some agreeing some not Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that too. But yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. And I just got to give you uh, some credit on that, the intro. You nailed it for you know having the quote unquote COVID brain. So I'm ready to roll. <laughs> that that might have uh, exhausted the uh, the extent of my creativity, but um, yeah, we'll take it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no, like I said, this has been a long time coming. This has been um, for for me. It's definitely been. Uh, you know, I've, I've admired your work. I've always enjoyed talking to you when we do end up on a, you know, somebody else's podcast um, on a panel. Um, but yeah, it, it, we've needed to talk one-on-one just because, <clears throat> you know, for those who are longtime listeners of the Superflex Super Show, they know all too well that I give in from time to time. I talk about, you know, I talk about players, 
um, individual players and even worse, like I hate doing it, but I do it for the fans. I do it for the listeners. Talk about rookies right around rookie draft time, um, right around the NFL draft. But I don't, that's not what I want to be doing. I want to be talking strategy. And to me, you're one of the best strategists out there. I know that we don't always agree on process. Uh, A lot of times we end up with similar conclusions. Um, But uh, above all else, to me, strategy is so important in this game. It's so important to have kind of a, a set of guidelines to go off of. And to me, and you're one of the innovators. You've got your your portfolio dynasty strategy, and um, and I, I mean I've also I'm also in a couple leagues with you, so I see this thing in action. Um, you're relentless when it comes to trading, and you know all of this stuff. To me, this is all so important. Like when people talk about, you know, be water, let it come to you. I hate that. It doesn't work for me. That doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to me to think about what you're going to do, what what you want to happen and how you want to get there. And so that's why I say I want to be here talking strategy because I think that it's absolutely crucial. More people should should think about and employ some type of strategy regardless of where you're at in this game. And so the opportunity to talk with you about this stuff uh, is it, like I said, it's, it's, uh, something that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. Um, but so I want to start with that though, with your, with your strategy and just kind of tell us, you know, essentially how it works, you know, what are some of the tent poles of it? Um, and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you kind of introed it pretty well with saying, strategy. You have to have a macro strategy, which starts with understanding the game we're playing. You know, we're playing a game based on NFL football, right? That's where we're getting the results to plug into the math formula that we use that we call dynasty. I think one of the biggest things you have to acknowledge, and I didn't always acknowledge this, but when I started playing more of a portfolio, what it did was allow me to zoom out of one league, two leagues, four leagues, eight leagues, out to the point where I'm in over 50 leagues. And people are like, well, how do you manage 50 leagues? And you know what? I'm not necessarily trying to sell everybody on managing 50 leagues. But I think some of the conclusions that you can get, and it's not just me. So I've built a Patreon community that has almost 200 members at this point. And a lot of them are portfolio players, right? A lot of them have come to me because they're like, hey, I'm in 25 leagues. I want something different than who do I draft? Who do I start? What do I trade? What's good trade value? You know, they want something that's a little bit different. And so I'm not only crowdsourcing my own leagues. I have a group that's also crowdsourcing, you know, probably on average 15, 20, 25 leagues. So as a whole, we have a community that's almost like an organic version of, you know, some of these sites where kind of like keep trade cut, but that's different. It's a lot of people that are inputting their inputs, but there's not anything really at stake when they're doing it, right? But we have a whole community of people where I'm like, hey, at any point, any given time, I can leverage a thousand leagues at one time. Mm -hmm. And now some of them are different. They're obviously different competition, different stakes, different platforms, but they're real life human beings making decisions. And I think that's the biggest benefit. And that's what I've been able to kind of develop 
from my strategy is when I'm in so many leagues, it's allowed me to zoom out and say, okay, I acknowledge that there is a lot that we do not know. Okay. So first of all, there's a lot we can't predict, but there's also a lot that we can't even ever know. You know, I've talked about this topic with other people on podcasts. We sit here and go back and forth about grinding NFL news and the nuances of all the stuff that we take in, in a given football year, right? There's probably 80% of it. We don't even know. We're never going to know getting down to the point. Like what's in the heads of some of the players that we're relying on, on our teams, what's in the heads of the coaches, you know, did they wake up feeling good that day? Are they really stressed out? Is that going to impact? We don't know any of that stuff. And I know I'm kind of going into the weeds already, but it's basically the overriding theme is acknowledging there is so much. I don't care how much data you have. I don't care how much data you grind. I don't care how many podcasts, articles, whatever you consume. You're never going to know probably more than like 20% of the information Mm -hmm. ever. We can know a lot, but not enough to say, okay, I'm going to beat you, John Hogue, because I have more information than you. That's gone. That edge is gone. And now that you have so many content creators you have so many people in our space that are better than you and I at taking thousands and thousands of pieces of information and summing up in one chart or one graph. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so like, yeah. I'm not going to be able to beat you by just having more knowledge than you. Five mm-hmm. years ago, you might've been able to beat somebody in a league because maybe you heard something that they didn't, or it didn't make its rounds for a week or two and you were able to take advantage. Now it's like instantaneous. So that's not an edge anymore. There's not an edge in necessarily saying, I'm going to be able to pick players better than you. I'm going to be able to trade better than you. Sure. I may be able to make a trade that's advantageous every once in a while, but generally if I'm going against a lot of other Scott Connors or John Hoags, I'm not just making trade after trade after trade where it's like, oh my God, how are you doing that? You know what I mean? Like you've just wiped everybody out with three trades. That doesn't happen in a lot of leagues we're in. So where's the edge? Where, Where is the edge? If the edge isn't information, if the edge isn't in just being able to pull the wool over people's heads. There's two edges, in my opinion. One, like you mentioned, the, the activity, the, the, the attention to detail, you know, like how, how zoomed in and how much do you want to grind? Are you on your phone all the time? Are you, are you able to sit down? I mean, I really don't spend, I would say, tons and tons of time on sending out trades, but I'll wake up in the morning when I'm having like my morning coffee. I'll go to a league or two and I already know what I want to do. I'll just send out 30 trades. In 15 minutes, you know what I mean? It's just boom, boom, boom. It's all process. There's very little, well, hey, let me sit here and study for a half hour on one roster and figure out what I want to do. That's the advantage of kind of already having an overarching process. And then the second thing is just understanding where the current NFL is, understanding where, uh, I know Jordan McNamara is great at this, Adiko is really great at this, understanding like positional value and warp value and how to integrate that in your specific settings. I think that's huge. That way you can kind of just say, hey, I went into this league. I already know where the leverage is. I already know what players are supposed to be valued where, but I don't even care who the players are. I know this is the archetype and the prototype of the type of team I want to build. And I'm going to consistently leverage that. Forget about what players they are. I can worry about the names later. Yes. So that's that, that's kind of how I approach things. you know. And then I'll get into a new league and go, okay, let me zoom in a little bit. What does this league look like specifically from the scoring and the settings and all of that? but it's really driven by an overarching process and then it's evolving process. One thing that I've, I've noticed over the last couple of years is as I've built my own community and I've kind of taught a lot of people what I'm doing and showed them what I'm doing. Now the question is, John, how do I beat those people? 
Because yeah. I'm not the sharpest. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I might have come up with a process, but as soon as I show 10 people, I guarantee you there's three or four of those people that are smarter than me or better mm-hmm. than me. And they can beat me with my own process. So I'm like, I'm always having to evolve. What is the next edge in the dynasty space? You know, so it's a challenge, but I think that's how you have to be looking at it. I've ranted for seven minutes. I haven't mentioned one thing about a position or a player or anything. You know what I mean? And that that's, that's, I, I think that. where you come up with the dynasty strategy. And then I figured, Hey, when I have this strategy and I've seen it work, what should I do? I, I add more leagues and more leagues. And when I add another league, honestly, there's no difference between, I mean, I don't know how many you're in, but dude, once you're in like 20, what's 21? Right. What's, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're already having to invest a, a certain overhead of time every week to, to run 20 leagues, get in 25. And once you're in 25, like, yeah, there's obviously a stopping point, but the, there's diminishing returns in terms of the time that it's going to cost. And if you have a strategy, it's really easy to run. You know what I mean? It's really easy to start a new league and go, this is exactly how I'm going to play. And I'll worry about what players I get later on. So we'll get into the nuances, but I think that's that's where I'm coming from. And we haven't talked a thing about actual dynasty players or anything like that yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and that's that's what I love about this is, and this is one of the things that, that we absolutely agree on is, I mean, essentially what I'm hearing you say is something that I say here on the podcast all the time, which is that the names don't matter. Like with the right roster build, with the right mix of players, it doesn't matter what names you have. And I think that, you know, like, and, and I can preach that, but I still end up with, uh, you know, a lot of players uh, like Saquon Barkley is a guy that I have been super high on, you know, throughout the course of this off season, um, feeling like, <clears throat> you know, this is one of the, the a handful of guys who has an opportunity to be the running back one overall in 2022, be the unfair advantage. And so, like, I'm just kind of going through in all my leagues and, and zeroing in on Saquon Barkley. You take this even a step further than that, though. You know, the names don't matter portion of this. And, you know, at, at least the way I understand it, and you can definitely, you know, kind of correct me where I'm wrong, fill in some some blanks, fill in some voids for us. But it it seems like... Uh, okay, so it, let me let me kind of lay this out. The, and again, this is this is my perspective. But so for me, Saquon Barkley, DeAndre Swift, like those are those are two guys that I think are the most likely to give you that unfair, unbeatable advantage in uh, in 2022. One of those two guys. And so you know where my goal might be to get you know, I'm getting as much Saquon Barkley as I possibly could. Uh, the way I understand it, your goal would be more to kind of diversify between the two. You want one roster that's, you know, that's got a kind of a mix of, uh, of, you know, of, of wide receivers that take advantage of premiums and, and settings and, and things like that. And then you want Saquon Barkley and then you've got a similar, you know, a, a league with a very similar roster build with very similar settings. And instead of going after Saquon Barkley, you would get, go after DeAndre Swift. That's that's kind of the way I understand it. And I'm, I might be oversimplifying it. That's very possible as well. Um, I know that you're in a lot more leagues, so it's not as quite as simple as, 
you know, if you're in 20 leagues, it's not, all right, I want Barkley on 10 of them and Swift on 10 of them. Like, it's not necessarily, it doesn't work that way, but that seems like kind of the, the, the skeleton of the, of the strategy, if I understand it. Yeah. I mean, and actually you brought up the, the easiest position to start with, with his running backs. And so like you, you literally transitioned right into, I think the easiest way to kind of articulate what I'm talking about. So, you know, there's been a lot of, and actually we've, we've gotten a lot of growth in this area from the best ball community too, uh, because they're the ones that have, have really made it mainstream to talk a lot about this data, which really, if you think about it, applies to dynasty. The only thing that changes in dynasty is the names from year to year. And a lot of times it's just the perception of the names. So you mentioned a guy like Barkley, like really the only difference between Barkley fitting in this certain box of where he would fit on a roster is just year to year. What is his acquisition cost year to year to year? What is his outlook, you know, in that given season, but that's it. It's just the names that change for me. I'm not even really concerned about the names yet, but if you just take the running back position, so I'll just throw out some data and I'm going to spit a whole bunch of data at one time. So nice. Forgive me. So I, mean, I, I looked back at the last 10 years, and Adiko's done a lot of work on this. Uh, Jordan McNamara has talked about this for a couple of years. Uh, is really just looking at where is the re- what is replacement value at running back, okay? Let's define replacement value. And when I say replacement value, that means if I'm below the replacement value or I'm at replacement value, I can make that up cheaper based on the current market cost by having an abundance of running backs on my team. Now, I have to get kind of lucky. I have to get the right combinations at the right times during the right weeks. That's easier said than done. You can look at a team and go, man, I love all my backup running backs. But then you get into a season and you might go week to week and you're every week you're searching for one or two that you can find to play. Right. So it, you're not zooming in yet. But this is where you're going to get into this idea of. So over the last decade, replacement value at running back is defined about 14.3 points per game. Okay. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you look at any player and we're having to do a little bit of like, you know, galaxy braining here, but you can kind of look back at a player's career and you go, OK, there's probably a really good range of outcomes to say this player is not going to be much above that 14.3 points per game. So look at a guy like Nick Chubb, look at a guy like Josh Jacobs, look at a guy like David Montgomery. Historically, it's going to be very difficult for those guys to probably well outpace that replacement level number. Okay. Now, and then you can look at, you know, kind of where that number starts to scale up, what that means from like RB1, RB2, RB3, like where does it fall? And what is the, what is the war or what is the warp that you're getting from a player that finishes where like Jonathan Taylor did last year? You know, Jonathan Taylor was just around right under 22 points per game. Historically, that's about 52% above replacement. Okay. So if you had Jonathan Taylor last year, you could effectively be able to take like, half of replacement value in your RB2 spot and still be keeping up with the Joneses, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about defining that replacement value, there's two ways to play it. You mentioned Barkley, you mentioned Swift. So anything above that replacement value, which historically is right around like RB8 or better. So we're talking like an RB8 or better season. Those are the guys I want to target. Those are the guys I want to build my running back rooms around. So if that's Barkley, if that's Swift, if that's Eckler, if that's Derrick Henry, if that's McCaffrey, if that's whoever, you pick the players. I'm not even going to tell you necessarily what players. I can tell you what archetypes might fit that. I can tell you historically like what a 
20 point per game season entails. Like there's probably some thresholds that you have to hit to do that. Like you're probably going to need at least 60 catches or 50 catches at minimum. You're probably going to need somewhere around like 300 plus touches. So if I just give you those two rules, you're going to probably be able to look at some players and go, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure JK Dobbins is going to get 300 plus touches this year. Mm -hmm. I certainly know he's not going to get 50 catches. Yeah. So, okay. If you just take that, those two data points, you go, okay, JK Dobbins is probably around the replacement level. So I'm just simply looking at teams going, okay, where do I maybe have JK Dobbins where I can try to upgrade and get one of those other running backs. It doesn't even matter if it's JK Dobbins. It's whoever you think it might be. If you Mm -hmm. think JK Dobbins is going to have a 20 point per game season, then fine. You can build the hero RBs around him. But I think it's just understanding that that's where the running back position, this data has stayed consistent for a long time. The names have changed. Some of these names have moved from major advantage to not much an advantage anymore. You know, like the names can change from year to year. But I think the idea is you do want to always keep your running back room, I think, designed in a certain way, which is basically give me the highest end potential one or two year outcome player I can get. So maybe that's McCaffrey. Give me an RB two that has some potential like Barkley, like Swift. Maybe there's a couple guys you like that are a little bit lower that can maybe jump up into that range. Like Aaron Jones is one that's had multiple top five seasons, but he's not a top 15 dynasty running back. I'm fine with him as my RB two. Again, I'm not even looking at running backs past one year. Mm-hmm. I'll worry about the, the names next year. Yeah. After have that, to. <laughs> yeah, you have you have to. And after that, then I'm focusing on, I don't necessarily, and it's easier said than done because a lot of rosters that people will come to me and say, hey, help me out with this roster. You know, a lot of times you'll see that they're so misaligned with their roster construction that it will take a little time to fix it. But essentially, after you have those anchor running backs, and that's how I would prefer to do it, have one guy that I think has like an upper end range of outcomes another guy that has like a top eight range of outcomes, everybody else, I don't care. Yeah. And so with that though, if I go, okay, I have Leonard Fournette as my RB three. I don't care. I'll sell Leonard Fournette. I don't care if I'm the best team in the league. I've identified him being around that replacement level. Let me liquidate that and let me backfill that with extra running backs. And I know you do this too. Oh yeah. Like any running back that can make a team I want on my roster now versus You know, and and people are like, wow, you know, why would you go through and cut, you know, Donovan Peoples-Jones or James Washington or something? Think about the equity of having those players and when you're ever going to be able to pick to start them. Exactly. And and so, like, you know what? If you can't get anything for them, you're actually hurting yourself by sitting there and holding them year after year after year. It's like drafting Justin Ross this year. Mm -hmm. What is going to trigger you to cut Justin Ross? What does he have to do or not do? Because if he just like makes a play in preseason, but then doesn't really do anything, doesn't make the active roster, is on the practice squad, there's going to be people that go, well, he just needs an extra year. You know, let's wait till next year. Well, you just wasted a roster spot holding him all year. That could have been, I don't know, Darrington Evans is a guy that's on every waiver wire. He -hmm. may not even make the Bears. But you know what? If he does, I'd rather roster him than Justin Ross. Yep. And that's an extreme, but that's the way of thinking that you're looking at this going, if I think this way for maybe two years, I'm going to look up next year and I'm going to have a running back room where it's like, damn, 17 of my 30 roster spots are running backs and they're just getting turned and burned and turned and burned. And now I'm betting that during a given season, 
All I have to do in a league where I start two running backs, all I have to do is fill in 34 running back starts throughout the year, right? That's it. That's assuming I make the championship week 17. I have to find 34 weeks where I'm confident enough to say, hey, I think Devontae Booker is going to get 14 touches this week. Well, you know what? When a guy's going to get like 15 touches, there's a pretty good chance that he can hit that replacement value. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's free money. There's guys literally on every waiver wire where you're like, well, one or two things could happen and they could hit that mark. So that is the dominant strategy to play running back. I know I was a little wordy, like most things, but no, that's no, that's, that's the dominant strategy. So, I mean, like yeah. if you have a team right now and you're listening to this and you're sitting there going, well, man, that really, really stacked team I have, I know I have four top 20 running backs. Mm-hmm. Given the fragility of the position, given how fragile it can be if a guy tears an ACL or if a guy has a bad year, their value is zapped. I mean, right now you've probably seen it. The running back market is already really rough out there. Like you go try to trade like, you know, Joe Mixon or Austin Eckler or something like that. The immediate return you get from the person that that you're going back and forth with is, well, I bet I might as well just keep that guy on my team because they're not offering me anything worth it to give you Austin Eckler. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it just isn't really worth it when you try to shop them. So if you find a spot where you can get out on one of those guys for like a 23 first, I don't care if I'm the best team in the league and John Hogue is the second best team in the league. I will trade you an excess running back on my team and I'll, I'll just figure I can combat some of that value that I just gave you back with my roster construction. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that is how I want to approach every team that I have steadfast rule. I never want to be overexposed. And I'm talking PPR leagues too. If you're getting into like point per carry and stuff, that's a little different, but just PPR leagues. I never want to be overexposed at running back. I want to trim my margins down as slim as possible. And I still think I can win that way with my roster construction. So that, that's how I would approach it. I mean, that's it. If yeah. you have any follow-up questions, let me know. But I think that that's the, that is the dominant strategy. That is what the data has said. And that's the way the NFL is trending too. I mean, the NFL, more, more running backs last year finished with like top 50 weeks than we've ever seen before. And yeah. that's just because teams are willing to throw in the next guy. Teams are willing to have a, you know, a 35, 45, 20 type committee. You know what I mean? Like that's common these days and it just wasn't in the past. So that's the dominant strategy. That That's how I approach running back in every single league. Yeah. And, and so that's just running back. So I imagine that you've got, um, something similar at every position. I, and I mean, I think that, you know, things like career expectancy probably play into it. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of a lot that goes into, uh, each different position. Like, you know, I always talk about the super flex flywheel where, you know, there's, there's different input from each of these positions, but it's all going into the same place and then kind of outputting it in different ways. Um, depending on where you need it, whether that's scoring or value. Um, but so I imagine that you've got something similar for each of the different positions. Um, we're, we're, we're still saying, you know, the names themselves don't matter, but it sounds like there's a little bit of a profile that you kind of go off of. And, and there's probably, you know, it's probably just a bucket of names that counts as, you know, kind of like RB3 type of range or, um, you know, uh, uh, like, um, you know, guys that are going to be in that kind of 14 point range, you know, replacement level range, you probably have 
you know, just kind of a, like, just kind of like in your mind, just like a catalog of names, I would assume, um, that kind of fit into each profile at each position. And what I'm curious of, first of all, is there a, a particular roster build that you, that you strive for in, you know, just a typical dynasty PPR Superflex league? And does that roster build change based on the profiles of players that you have on that roster? So I think if we, I think to answer that question, I, I do think just for an example, we need to probably give some sort of like parameter so people mm-hmm. can visualize it, you know? So yeah. like, let's just say a 12 team super flex where we have 11 starters mm-hmm. and then we have 30 roster spots. Yeah. And it isn't one of these like the kitchen sink where it's like one, 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 and then you can start all flexes. You know, that that obviously changes the scarcity of some of the positions a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Let's assume that it's a pretty stock. You start a quarterback, you start a super flex, you start two running backs, you start three receivers, you start a tight end, and then you start three flexes. That would be 11 starters, okay? Mm-hmm. So because you have to start three receivers, because you have to start two running backs, there is a little bit of scarcity that's built into those positions. Nobody can punt those positions entirely and just figure I'll get by by just having extra bodies. Yeah. So if you just assume that, and I think that covers probably a decent majority of probably people's leagues, whether it's 30 roster spots or 28 or 26 or 32, you can adjust. Maybe there's an extra starter, but you get the picture. You can adjust. I, I think part of the reason you can get to what I was talking about at running back is you do have to have a strategy with the other positions that allows you those extra roster spots to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll get into that too when we talk about quarterbacks and wide receivers. But to answer your question about the running back profiles, ideally, I would want to have a team where I have a really, I want to have the strongest anchor running back I can get. So think about who that would be. That's probably McCaffrey if he has his peak season. Next guy's up or probably a guy like Swift or Jonathan Taylor. Then you go down a tier where it's the older guys that still have that ceiling, like Kamara and Barkley, Eckler. After that, you're starting to get into the replacement value. So depending on who my other running backs are, I do want to have kind of a cascade down. If you just picture, if you just even look at like DLF ADP, I don't want to have all my extra running back bodies being at the very, very bottom of the tier. You know, I don't want a bunch of third string rookies or UDFA rookies. Like I do want to have a mix in there of some of the higher leverage handcuffs like Tony Pollard, Alexander Madison, Daryl Henderson. Then I want to have a couple of the rookies that I think could maybe ascend into this replacement value range with one break that goes their way. You know, a guy like Terry and Davis price or Tyler Algier or Keontae Ingram or someone like that. I want to have a mix of those guys. I want to have a mix of, you know, a, a, a Naheem Hines on every roster. You know, I want to have different mixes of players in different layers. You know, I don't need to target all of the highest leverage backups. I want maybe one or two, but I want to spread that out on my portfolio where I have some exposure to Tony Pollard. I have some exposure to Chuba Hubbard and Deontay Foreman in case something happens McCaffrey. Like I have exposures to all of the different specific tiers of running backs. And there's probably like five or six if you go down. So I think it's kind of understanding it's like a layered effect and that's going to make up most of your running back rooms. And I think you can adjust, you know, I was just looking at a roster tonight where I have actually Tony Pollard, Melvin Gordon, Mark Ingram, Daryl Henderson, 
and one other backup I was thinking of that's a pretty high leverage backup. But I'm sitting there like, okay, I have I have four or five pretty decent level backups where in a given week I might be able to play and get replacement level from those guys even in their backup weeks. You know, like I might be able to get that from some of those guys without needing the starter to even go down. So in those leagues, I can probably get away with maybe not having to be as aggressive chasing the second running back on my team, you know, because I probably have a little bit of a stronger shot at some of those next man ups. I have other teams where it's like I have two strong running backs and then literally I'm backfilling with a bunch of guys that I just pray make the roster. Those I'm going to probably have to do a little more work during the year. And I think the key to this strategy is we've seen in a lot of leagues, you can actually buy these types of running backs for a spot start if you're willing to pay during the season. They're not hard to buy. You can buy like an Alex Collins for a spot start. You give up a third, you can get that guy the day before the game and play him. Now, he might not do anything, but you can easily obtain these guys for one start. And if you think about that, like if I tell you, you only have to make 34 starts in a year and I have 12 extra running backs on my roster, hopefully I'm covering probably maybe a half a dozen or 10 or so starts with my guys that I already have on my team. Then the rest in certain weeks where I don't have any, like I look at my team and I go, yeah, I don't really have any running backs I can start this week. Then maybe you go out and buy one. So I think it's this this supplemental effect of you do want to kind of have some fluidity on your team. You want to have a couple extra seconds and a couple extra thirds and stuff backfilled where if you need to buy those during the year, you can do it and you can kind of hack your way to getting those running back starts. So I think that's how I would answer your question. But I think the biggest key is how you get to that spot on your team Mm-hmm. without giving up a lot of value. You don't just want to go drop every backup player that you have at other positions, but how do you get there? How do you get to like this liquidation mode where you can really just play the week-to-week game at running back? And a lot of it is you you need to be steadfast at your other positions. You know, most of my teams, I don't want to mess with quarterback during the year, ever. I want to be able to have three guys I can stream, high-end guys. Yeah. And I'll pay up at the beginning of the, of the, the draft and the startup to do that. Then I'll build backwards the next year or two to get my roster this way. Same with wide receivers. Like I want to have my core receivers and then I'm done. Mm -hmm. I don't want a bunch of wide receiver fives and sixes and sevens hanging on the bottom of my roster. I'm not going to know when to play those guys. So if I can get third round picks for them, gone, gone. And I'll use those picks later to buy running backs if I need them during the season. So that's kind of like the macro strategy of how you get there. Yeah. I like that. Um, Man, we uh, so I I do want to talk about the other positions and kind of what you're looking for, but I feel like there's a segue here. Um, so uh, let's uh, how how do you get there? Uh, so it sounds like uh, kind of quarterback heavy um, in the startup. I, I mean, f- uh, let's start with that. Like, what percentage of getting to this roster build are you hoping to achieve in the draft in the startup? And how much of it is, you know, going to be, you know, trade into it, uh, waiver moves, things like that. And then, you know, even, even more than that, uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, and again, this is, this is just kind of my understanding of the portfolio strategy, right? Um, Just the idea that, uh, like you said, you've got exposure to this player. You know, you've got maybe even overexposure to a certain player um, across all your leagues. So you go into the startup. Is that like, are are you going to purposely avoid that player 
or is it still just going to be you know kind of value-based drafting and then and then let's move pieces around later yeah so when it comes to the portfolio so i found a lot of people do this a little different than me (laughs) Uh, i am pretty pretty steadfast on like i try to limit my exposure to higher end assets to a very I mean, I'm usually about 20% is the max I'll go on a higher end asset. Once you get down outside of maybe like the top 50 to top 100 players, I'm okay going above that. I actually think it's smart to go above that when you're talking about like non top 100 players or so in a startup, because then those are the players that have the most volatility. You know, those are players that can go from absolutely worthless. You know, I think of, let me give you a perfect example. So a guy like Sterling Shepard, okay? Sterling Shepard was a guy I used to have right around the 20% exposure to. And he was a guy that was always wide receiver three, wide receiver four. You know, he was right on that cut line to where, like, he probably doesn't help you a whole lot, but he's still worth a roster spot, you know? Mm -hmm. Soon as he tore his Achilles, I cut him in every league. Every single league. I don't even care what the format is. He's cut. (laughs) And the idea of that is not that I don't think Sterling Shepard can ever come back and play NFL football again, but I'm making a bet that a profile like his, he's 30 years old, coming off a torn Achilles, he's now going to fall below that cut line of where I want to roster receivers, if that makes sense. He may get back and he may have a top 50 season. That's probably like the best range of outcomes for him. You know, and I don't really want to waste roster spots holding him for the entire offseason through the rookie draft, through free agency, through waiver runs, just for him to get back to a point where someone might give me a second round pick in two years. Mm-hmm. Very, very little to gain by holding him for a year. Right. So I mean, that's a player I'll just go cut. Yeah. That that's the principle where you look at your teams and you go, okay, can I put this receiver? On the trade block, can I get a third-round pick for him? If the answer is no, why is he on your roster? Yeah, that, that and that's a challenging thing for people to think about because there's a lot of receivers that we are attached to from four years ago that yeah. were going, well, you know, I, I just can't cut Nikhil Harry, man. You know, he, he could transition to tight end and go to another team and he'd break out in his sixth year. You know, Jalen Rager, cut him in every league. Yep. Most people would go, well, I'd hold him on a roster. Why? Yeah, why? And I know this is to the extreme, but I'm taking this strategy to the extreme, and this allows me to go, hey, I have a 30-man roster league. I kind of know where my cut line is. My cut line might be different than yours, John. I might say my cut line at wide receiver is right around, and there's there's some loose math you can do. I mean, if you just take in a PPR league over the last decade, it's been about a 60% flex rate for wide receivers. So I'll just do some real basic math. Say you have a three wide receiver league, right? Mm-hmm. In a 12 team or 12 team league where you have to start three receivers. That means 36 receivers are going to be in the lineup across the league guaranteed every week, right? Yeah. So let's say I have three flexes. If I just take that loose 60%, what is 60% of 36? Around 20, it's like 21, 21, 22. Mm-hmm. So basically I would calculate 36 receivers in the lineup around 21-22. That would be my cutoff. Once I get to around wide receiver 60, wherever my wide receiver 60 line is, I don't roster any receivers below that. So in a startup, when we start getting to that point, I'm done taking receivers. Even if I only have four or five, 
I'm done taking them at that point because I'm now betting that those are going to be roster cloggers. Every other spot after that is going to go to a running back, to a backup quarterback. Depending on my settings, it's going to go maybe to a platoon at tight end. But that's it. That's how you start down this road of roster construction. And then like Jordan McNamara, him and I see eye to eye on a lot of this stuff. And, you know, when you get into round three and round four of your rookie draft, what does Jordan say? Don't draft receivers. Yeah. You know, if, if they were th- later than a third round pick, don't draft them. Just pass. Just pass. It doesn't matter what their profile is. Just pass. Take the running back. And continue to do that process over and over. All of a sudden, you're going to look up and you have a team where you're like, wow, I have five or six core receivers. I have hopefully high-end quarterbacks because I'm big about trading into the startup. I'll give up my second and third round startup pick to get another first rounder so I can take you know, two elite quarterbacks. Then I'll just kind of let the chips fall where they may. And yeah. if I end up out of the startup draft with two elite quarterbacks, maybe I get a third backup like Baker Mayfield or Jimmy Garoppolo or something like that. I'm fine with that. If I have my receivers, I call them threshold receivers. Like if they're within that calculation of however many I can start plus the flexes, I'll draft them. Outside of that, I really don't want to take them. So that might leave me with three quarterbacks, six receivers, two tight ends. What's that? 11? Mm-hmm. I got 30 roster spots. I'm rostering 19 running backs. Yep. And then slowly, <laughs> slowly after that next year, I may draft a receiver because I, I want to supplement those. I want to grow more of those receivers, right? I may look for trades where I can trade for more of those receivers because I can always cycle in and cycle out the running backs, but that's how I would start it. I'm very predictable when it comes to a startup, but I think that gives you, you're already leveraging the dominant strategy going into it. And it gives you some principles to opt to act by. There's nothing worse. You get into a league and it's like, man, I didn't construct my team how I want. Now I have to fix it with trading. Cause then you're banking on the rest of the league to kind of be in sync with how you want to make moves. And if they're not, it can be very difficult. So hopefully that answer your question. I know long winded again. No, but that, yeah, I think that that hit on all of the salient points. So, so, okay, this is very hypothetical here in 2022. Like, people go nuts over wide receivers right now because we just had a wide receiver season in 2021, meaning we had a bad running back season in 2021 is essentially what happened. But, you know, so people are people draft the hell out of wide receivers. But let's just say hypothetically they are letting them, you know, drop to you in uh, in startup drafts. And you, you know, you've already got your, your three starters, you've got, you know, two or three on the bench and there's still guys falling to you that, that, you know, hit that threshold, surpass that threshold. And the reason for that is, you know, running backs getting picked clean, quarterbacks getting picked clean, stuff like that. Um, it, it is, does the value still compel you or are you just, are you still saying, all right, I've got, I, I hit my quota. I hit my, my roster limit on wide receivers and I'm done and I don't care who's falling. No, I, I don't think that the roster limit would come into play there. I would continue to take them because you kind of just hit on it. The current landscape is actually favorable if that were to happen to you mm-hmm. because you would be able to backfill the ones that you took earlier in the draft, which then are, are pretty viable trade equity in the current market. And I think that that's where it's, it's harder in a startup because in theory, things are a lot more even in the startup because 
there's not a bunch of values going all over the place. There haven't been years that have gone by that have swayed the values of trades that have happened and whatnot, where things are are pretty even. So in a startup draft, I'm focusing more on this is my build, but I'm okay kind of going outside of that build in lieu of the value, especially if it's the value that I know the market is going to embrace. I think the key is if that were to happen, let's say I got three quarterbacks and they just kept leaving me receivers and I ended up with 10 receivers that I figured were inside my threshold, right? Mm -hmm. I'm then going to leave that startup and go, okay, I'm, it's not that I'm overexposed at receiver, but if I can only start five receivers in a given week, I really only want to have probably around eight or nine max on my team, but I want them all to be on the highest end of that threshold as I can get. Once I've achieved that, I'm pretty good to go for the short term. I'm able to then pull from that excess and say, okay, I'm willing to now go trade one of those receivers that I drafted. And it's probably, given the current landscape, it's probably going to be which receiver on my roster can I get a 23 first for? Hmm. And that's probably not the guy I drafted at wide receiver nine or 10 on my team. That's probably back towards the guy I drafted at like wide receiver two or three. You know, that might've been the first or second receiver that I took. I mean, you've seen these streets trying to get 23 first for receivers, right? Like not a lot of people are paying that, you know, you're not getting like a 23 first for a Rashad Bateman or Cortland Sutton or, you know, most people are too smart to do that right now because they realize, Hey, those are not, those are good assets to have, but they're not difference making players most likely. Mm -hmm. So how do I liquidate from my excess? I think that's a big key of this strategy. That's why I'm so aggressive with some of the trades that I send out. They're not because like, I'm literally just trying to make a trade. It is, I'm trying to probably liquidate and get my roster back into alignment with how I want to go into the season with. And I think this is the perfect time to start doing that on teams that you already have that are a couple years old. Like turn that player into liquidation. You don't need that running back right now. But damn, I want to be the guy that has three first going into this season. 23 first, you know what I mean? If I have that, there's, there's going to be deals that I'm going to be able to get during the year where I get points for those 23 fists, 23 picks. Mm-hmm. Do I want to trade them away? Maybe, maybe not. But I have the flexibility too. So I think that's key. And you're, you're doing that at every position. You're doing that when you have too many receivers. You're doing that if you have too many high-end running backs. Let's yeah. say you had three high-end running backs and you happen to also draft Brees Hall. Okay, you, you have extra running backs now. You can afford to liquidate a little bit because your margins are only going to be so high, regardless of how stacked your team is. I can't remember who put this out, but they put out a thing on uh, basically like your winning percentage. If you get a buy and get a buy in the first round of your playoffs, like the most you can ever take yourself from like odds to win the championship is around 36%, no matter how strong your team is. So like, why wouldn't you want to thin? I always want to be at that 36%. I'm striving to get that first round buy, right? Have the best team in the league. Mm-hmm. But once I've hit that, why not start shedding some of my excess for future picks and just banking that maybe my odds, maybe my insurance is not as good as it was last week. But man, if it is enough to sustain me, I'm going to be able to build a juggernaut the next year because I'm the guy that maybe had a really strong team and I have all the extra picks. You know, that's yeah. kind of you get into the goal. That's what you start doing in year three, year four, year five. Once you're rolling with one of these teams that has a good team and you're constantly like being able to trade for future picks, you're almost unstoppable in leagues. You know what I mean? Like as long as you're active, you're going to always have the most assets to play around with and make different bets at different spots during the year. So I think that's the idea is always trimming from your excess just because it's diminishing returns. I mean, there's no reason to have 
two two teams in one roster that is better than every team in the league. What's the point? That's right. way too much volatility because so much can happen from week to week. Yeah. So what's the priority in a startup? Like, a, a, again, hypothetical. <clears throat> but we know that there are startups where they, that include rookie picks. Um, and, you know, uh, most startups allow you to tr at least trade for rookie picks, trade for future picks. Um, I think that we've seen some some leagues to uh, i feel like we've done a couple startups together in fact where we saw you know a lot of 2020 you know we did startups in 2021 where we saw a lot of 2023 picks starting to move around 2022 picks certainly moving as well um you know sometimes there's just a hotter market for them than others so yeah what kind of what becomes a priority there if you've got the opportunity to start grabbing some of those future picks especially, I mean, I know that, that you were out in front of a lot of people on the fact that 2023 is going to be, you know, kind of a makeup for 2022. And you started acquiring 2023s, you know, back in 2021, um, early 2021. Uh, you know, I, I saw some of that going on. <clears throat> and that turned out to be a huge advantage. But you know, we know that there's a sacrifice that has to be made in order to do that, in order to put your future self into that type of advantage. There's a sacrifice that has to be made in the immediate, in the, you know, in the, in the short term. Um, and it, it, it doesn't have to be pronounced. Um, but, you know, just, you just know that for basically, uh, you know, seventh round startup value, you're for a seventh round startup pick, you're able to get one of those future picks that you know is going to be worth, you know, the the players that in that are going in the second and third round of the startup right now. You just have to wait a little bit to get there. So, you know, so you know that you're 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 sacrificing a usable player with that seventh pick, but you know that it's ultimately going to be worth it, even if it does kind of you know slow you down a little bit here in year one you know what what's the what's the priority there how much how much of it is like let's let's get as many of those 2023s as we possibly can and how much of it is you know i, I want to get some of those i want to have the ability to um to use those and even better i mean that's gonna that's to me at least that's gonna be a year to make picks uh, typically I feel like you're, uh, it's suboptimal to make a draft pick. I think 2023 is going to be a little bit of an exception there. Um, but you know, how much of it, how much of it is going to be, um, you know, let's create that future advantage. How much of it is now nah, we need to build a roster here. That's going to be competitive in year one and start to maximize our winnings. Yeah. Great, great question. And I think it, it stems on, a, it's if I would have probably taken this strategy and it would have been 2022, it wouldn't have looked as dominant because the market for the picks was not as good. Mm -hmm. I think that was part of the bet on 2023 is that it isn't about the prospects in 2023. Yeah. It's about what everybody else thinks about the prospects in 2023. It's mm -hmm. about extending my window to where it isn't that I want to make all the picks that I have for 2023, but I'm going to have basically like 
live rounds of ammunition constantly until we get to those draft picks. You know what I mean? Like I'm always going to have different pieces that I can throw out to other people that they're going to think, Hey, you know, I'm going to have a shot at getting this type of prospect. You know, I'm going to have a shot at, you know, and and I've heard you say it before that running backs and quarterbacks are what's going to drive the market value for the picks. Mm -hmm. Now, with what I've already talked about with the replacement value at running back, it quite frankly, running backs are great to draft in rookie drafts because they're typically cheaper than the open market. But a lot of running backs, if I told you, John, I'm going to draft Kenneth Walker and he's going to give me Joe Mixon's career, you'd be like doing backflips. Like, oh, that's a great pick. You know what I mean? I, I nailed that one out of the park. Mm-hmm. But then you look at his career and you're like, you know, he's just been maybe like 10% or above replacement. So, it's very hard to draft a running back and they end up hitting this massively above replacement value. It is very hard to hit on those generational running backs that literally win seasons on their own. It's not that hard to hit on good, solid running backs. You know, there is a Josh Jacobs and a David Montgomery in every class. And we're pretty good at predicting those in Dynasty, right? The guys that were like, First, second, maybe third round picks, the guys that have certain physical profiles, you know, they're going to be, you know, certain athleticism, certain weight, certain BMI, like we we're pretty dialed in with who those profiles are. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You and I Mm -hmm. don't need to sit here and debate who are the best profiles that we've already. Most people have already zoomed into like the three or four guys we should probably pay attention to in every class. It's it's obvious. And so those are always going to be available in every class. Now, some are stronger than others. Some we can profile to have much higher upside and you want to have some shots where, you know, there's part of if Bijan Robinson is the next Saquon Barkley, like you want to have a couple picks in different leagues where you may have access to him. You know, you want to be able to get those at that pick in the rookie draft versus ever have to take him in the first round of a startup draft. Cause I don't think you and I are wanting to take a running back in the first part of a startup draft. You know what I mean? Right. That's typically if that's what it would cost and I didn't get any Bijan Robinson, I'm probably not getting any until his value falls enough to where I'm going to get him. Or I just feel like, Hey, I need to have him in one league. So I'll go and overpay, but I'm not going to get any organically. And I think we've also learned that the way the current quarterback landscape is designed, it's very hard to hit on quarterbacks in rookie drafts too. We know which ones to take, probably the ones that the NFL drafts in the top 50 picks are better, and you hopefully their top 20 picks are better. Mm-hmm. But just because I hit on a quarterback doesn't mean I really hit on a difference-making quarterback. I'm probably hitting on like a placeholder quarterback, you know, yeah. like a Mac Jones. There's a Mac Jones in every draft class, but what's Mac Jones? If he's never better than quarterback 17 or 18, there's probably something better I could have done with that pick. So to speak of that, I think the running backs and the quarterbacks, the appeal of being able to hit on difference makers there is what drives the value of draft picks up, which is why I want to have them. It's the opposite at receiver. Honestly, there's a receiver market now where as soon as somebody comes in the league and they're a first round receiver, I mean, go look at like the ADP right now for Chris Olave or Drake London or Garrett Wilson. I can easily flip any of those guys for a veteran producer. Yeah, pretty much. I can find a veteran producer that's four or five years older and I can literally guarantee myself the production. The only thing I'm giving up, what am I giving up when I trade away Drake London for Marquise Brown? What what am I giving up? I'm giving up like the the 10% outcome that he's the next Justin Jefferson. Then I got crushed in that deal. 
But if he's just like Devontae Smith or Rashad Bateman, I, I didn't lose that trade. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I look at I look at every year when I talked about those threshold receivers. If I have three firsts next year, I have three threshold threshold receivers. I can find a receiver. There is going to be five, six, seven receivers that go in the top 50 of every NFL draft for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Whether they're good or not, whether they're Jalen Rager or, you know, Nikhil Harry or whether they're Justin Jefferson and CD Lamb. I'm not sure of that. But it doesn't matter because those guys all had the value of like a top 30 receiver the day they came into the draft. So literally receivers, I just look at it like, hey, the worst case scenario next year, if I have four 23 firsts, and those end up being 109 and one through 112. I'm not getting CJ Stroud. I'm not getting Bijan Robinson. I'm not getting Jameer Gibbs. Oh well, I'll take four first round receivers. You know, but yeah. at least I have a liquidity, a liquid asset that I can move around the board. So yeah. I think that that's kind of the, my, my macro strategy, and that's not just 2023. That is that we're at a current point where wide receivers basically grow on trees. Every draft, there's going to have guys that are first round picks, whether they're as good a profiles as last year or better than next year, who knows? But every year, if I'm able to say I'm going to draft a first round receiver, which you're going to have four, five, six in every single draft, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a liquid asset. But really what's driving those values up is, man, what if you have this year's receiver class, but then you also throw in five first round quarterbacks and two first round running backs and two other running backs that are top 50 picks and a top 20 tight end, you can see why people think it's going to be a mega class. And so, man, I just want four of those picks. That buys me time. Next year, I I can build a whole team around trading away those picks if I don't want to make the picks. So I think Mm -hmm. that's the theory why you invest in the draft picks, but especially 2023. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The other funny part, I mean, there's just some psychology behind it, which is that most dynasty players see it 2023 first. And instantly value it as if it's 101 just like exactly. across the board exactly. so uh, like th- it's it's pretty easy to take advantage of that um i do want to get back to the the positions and uh we've we've got a purpose um i'm i'm uh i'm you know quarterback centric show quarterback extreme strategy so definitely want to get to the quarterbacks here in a second even though i know that it's going to hurt me um uh, but Let's 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 just focus on the wide receivers for just a quick second before we move on to to quarterbacks. Uh, how would you how do you define the threshold? Do you quantify it? Is it kind of conceptual? Is it is it um, you know I, I've got to be able to tell myself a story where he actually has a path into my lineup and is better than what's available on waivers? Is it is it that simple, or do you have a way to kind of quantify that? It's extremely conceptual. And so if I don't articulate this perfectly, forgive me. So you can easily do a calculation just based on what I told, what I said earlier with the 60% of the flexes and however many receivers. So let's just say you've determined that your threshold is top 60. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean just go look at like DLF ADP and say, I'm not taking anybody below wide receiver 60. Because you look below wide receiver 60 and you may say, Ooh, you know, Jacoby Myers, I could see him being a top 36 receiver, but he's wide receiver 70 in dynasty. Okay. I would consider him probably a, a threshold receiver for my roster, but I also know that he's probably one of those spots where next year I'm going to have to be cognizant that that might be one that comes open. He could easily fall into the 
I'm cutting him off my team next year range too, right? Like he could have a good season or he could be one of those that's really volatile. Same thing with like Jarvis Landry or Adam Thielen. Like I could tell my story where all of these guys are top 36 receivers, but they're also not top 60 dynasty valued receivers necessarily. Then you have guys on the other end where I'm going like, you know, I can probably see where like Christian Watson is a top 60 dynasty receiver, but that dude may not finish in the top 80 next year. So you have to kind of balance out like, hey, I may say I have eight threshold receivers, but if I have three Christian Watsons, do I really have a viable wide receiver room going into next year? Right. Maybe not. Now, if I have four Adam Thielens and Jarvis Landry's, I'm equally as exposed next year to where any of those guys get hurt or they drop off or anything. They immediately fall into like roster clogger range, you know? So you, you have to kind of have a mix. So really, in theory, I may say wide receiver 60 is my cutoff, but I kind of want to have a blend. When I start getting to that bottom end of the range, I want to have, for every Christian Watson, I want to have a Jarvis Landry. Mm-hmm. You know, for every George Pickens, I want to have an Adam Thielen. And it's just kind of mix and match. You know, I never want to be way too overboard on one of those guys, but I don't always want to just say I'm, I'm avoiding some of these guys where I can squint and say, hey, they could be a top. 50 or better receiver for this given year. So I think yeah. it's a mix. Now at the higher end, you don't have to look at whether it's a mix. If you look at like the top 30, 36 receivers in dynasty ADP, those are largely, except for maybe a couple of the rookies, those are largely guys you already assume are going to produce in that range anyway, mm-hmm. because we value rookie receivers basically immediately at their, their production price. As soon as they come in the league. We take a first round receiver with a good profile. That dude's like wide receiver 17 in startups right away. So there really isn't any like growth into the value anymore when you're talking about the high end guys. So I just kind of lump them into one group and say, I want to have a blend of, you know, a different type of wide receiver room that has a blend of all of those types. So I think that that kind of answers your question, but I don't think you need to overthink it. You don't need to say like, I have to be a steadfast rule. I think the key part is identifying which are those guys you would consider inside your threshold and where can you make exceptions? You know, like there's some wide receivers that are outside of, I think most people's threshold that I will make exceptions for. And this is one of the few places where I'll say, okay, I'm talking players. Like I'll give you two examples like Kendrick Bourne and KJ Osborne. Those guys are not top 80 dynasty receivers, like trade value wise. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. But if I have them on a team, I will loosely count them as like a threshold receiver for this year. Yeah. But I also know that they are probably guys I need to replace as soon as next year. Yeah. But yeah. that's it. Like that. that's as scientific as I get it. And it's very conceptual. It's almost like it, back to the old theory. If you can't get a third round pick for the guy, why are you rostering him? Because the right. market will speak. You can get a third round pick for Russell Gage or KJ Osborne. Someone will pay for those guys because, hey, I think they could have a decent season. So I think that's your gauge on these very, very like bottom end threshold players. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I mean, I imagine anyways, this is this is certainly how I would do it. I, I'm guessing this is how you do it as well. But I mean, once you get there, once you've got, you know, the number of wide receivers that you're looking for that all satisfy you know, the, the standards that you're going off of, I mean, you just tighten it, you know, you just squeeze it a little bit from there and say, all right, so now I want to turn all of these guys into, uh, you know, top 40, whether we're talking floor or upside, you know, um, and, and 
So, I mean, I think that's part of why it's important not to keep it a steadfast rule is to give yourself that, that ability to, you know, to raise the bar as you go. Uh, let's talk quarterbacks. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, like a, I have some questions I want to <laughs> ask you about kind of where this, the future of this position is going. So I'm, I'm okay. ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Well, I, I think I want to start just kind of with the threshold, um, you know, pretty, pretty basically. I mean, you've kind of laid out, you're looking for two high end guys. Um, maybe a third is kind of the backup. Um, and you know, this is, this is something that, that we're not unfamiliar with. So here's the thing, like just to, just to kind of take a step back. Uh, I spent the entire 2021 off season just kind of on here by myself. Wasn't really bringing on guests all that much, just talking about the quarterback extreme strategy. Um, and it, you know, started to piss people off, <laughs> started to sound like a snake oil salesman. And so I figured, you know what, we need to balance this out and spend the 2022 off season talking about alternative strategies. Um, not because I don't believe that quarterback extreme still works. Um, it's still by far the best strategy for me personally, but I just, I just recognize that it's a, it, it can be a bridge too far for people. Um, and not only that, I do believe that as long as you've got a strategy, it can work, whatever it is. Like I said at the very beginning, the, the whole key is to just have a process, have a strategy, have some guidelines that you're going off of, some objectives that you're trying to hit. It doesn't have to be quarterback extreme. It doesn't have to be the super flex flywheel. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be portfolio dynasty. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, any one thing, but you do need something to go off of. And you're going to find the, the, you know, kind of the strategy and the process that works best for you. And so that's why I just, I, I felt like we really kind of need to bring some balance um, to the entire conversation here on the Superflex Super Show, and represent some other strategies, um, because you know I I don't want it to sound like the only way that you can win a Superflex Dynasty League is with five or more quarterbacks. That's not the case. We know that that's not the case. I think that it sets you up the best in the long run, and I think that it streamlines uh, roster setting. Um, lineup setting, but uh, there are so many different ways <laughs> to get this done. And, <clears throat> you know, so along the way, we've heard a lot. Uh, I mean, I've had Addison Hayes, I've had Jordan McNamara, both of them talking about kind of the same thing, high-end quarterbacks. Just give me two high-end quarterbacks and I'm good. You know, I'm I'm just going to set it and forget it with those two guys. On bye weeks, I'll throw in, you know, whatever third guy I've got. And, you know, I like it, it, it's, it's, it's valid, it's viable, it's a winning strategy. So, you know, there, there's, there's no denying that. Um, but I do think that it, it makes it a little bit more challenging to identify, uh, the profiles that you're going after. You know, if you say, if you say, you know, if, if you're taking two quarterbacks and I'm taking five, it is a little bit easier for me to find the five that, you know, are really going to kind of uh, fit, um, 
you know, that are going to allow me to set a lineup that's going to give me, you know, maximum production week in and week out. Um, But takes up, it takes a lot of draft capital to get there in a startup or a lot of trade value to get there to trade into that. And it takes up a lot of roster space that could be used on running backs like we've kind of been talking about. So, um, you know, so there, there's there's kind of two sides to everything. And that's why, you know, I, I want to make sure that the other side gets represented. That's the whole goal. That's been the goal this entire offseason is to make it so that quarterback extreme is not the law of the land around here. You don't have to just listen to me, you know, browbeat you over, over, you know, taking five quarterbacks starting in the first round and not stopping until the 10th round, you know? Um, and so all that being said, uh, you know, this, this, uh, like this, this is also meant to say, this isn't an ambush. This isn't me saying, all right, Scott, like, like, tell me why you're wrong about quarterback extreme, because that's not the, that's, that's not the belief. Um, the belief is that there's another valid strategy that some people are going to like even more than quarterback extreme. So let's get to that. What are the thresholds for quarterbacks? What does that look like? What does a profile look like of the quarterbacks that uh, that you're striving to get on uh, on your rosters? Well, I want to just compliment you because I I admire over as long as I've listened to you, you've you've embraced the fact that you identified a strategy that works for you, but you also identified that is it, it is an extreme strategy. Yeah. And I think there is an advantage in identifying an ability to do something to the extreme. You know, if everyone is just kind of playing status quo in the middle, it's very hard to find an edge. And I'm sure you've done some leagues where you've done, you've gone QBX and it hasn't worked out. And some of the assumptions that you've made, that you think are going to happen if I go QBX didn't come to fruition in that league. Yep. And it might even made you feel a little frustrated that like, okay, maybe this isn't the best way to play it. But I think taking that swing of going to the extreme, whatever your angle is, you know, we all have different angles where, you know, I have a lot of things where I'm willing to make an extreme bet that this is going to happen. And if it does, I think I have a strategy that's catering to that. But I really want to be the one in the league that's taking it to the most extreme place, because if that ends up working, I'm going to be the one that has the biggest advantage. So I think that's an important thing. It's not just quarterbacks or whatever. I think it's about, you know, especially when you get in some of these leagues that are really competitive and have a lot of people that are, you know, deep thinkers about this stuff. Uh, It works great in leagues where there's multiple copies of players. If you're in like a you know, people will come to me and say, what should I do? How should I build my team when it's a 36 person league? You know, like mm-hmm. one of the kitchen sink leagues has 48 teams. You know how hard it is to win a 48 team. League? <laughs> you you yeah. almost need to take the biggest swings possible at whatever direction you're headed. If you whiff big deal, you, you whiff and you fall all the way to the bottom, but there is no value in kind of just playing it straight up the middle. And being the 12th best team in the league. You know what I mean? Like you almost have to go even more to an extreme than you would in a single 12 team league. So I think we we undervalue the 
ability to take an extreme strategy and push it and push it and push it. Because I think part of the QBX is, you know, you've mentioned this before, when you're doing QBX, you're actually hoping you rub off some of your strategy onto others and they either try to chase you, but they don't chase you as hard as maybe you are, you're going. Mm -hmm. But you also hope that some of your decisions actually make other people cascade into making bad decisions with their picks too. Yep. There's nothing better when you take three quarterbacks to start a draft and then you go, oh, that guy just took Tom Brady in the fourth round. Yeah. You're, you're just sitting there clapping, going, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. You know what I mean? Yep. That's it. You want everybody else chasing their tail because they're they're panicking. When really, the way you can beat John Hogue with QBX is almost, you don't take any quarterbacks. Yeah. You yeah. hog all the draft picks, all the receivers, and all the running backs. And then you go, hey, John, all I got to do is hit <laughs> on a couple quarterbacks in the draft. And then I'm going to pound you. You know what I mean? He, he speaks from experience, by the way. Like well, this, this literally happened. And, and, and it really sucks because it was Rocky Petrella's Tecmo League uh, where this is this is where quarterback extreme um, worked the absolute worst for me. And it's in the league where both you and Rocky are in that league as, as you know, longtime critics of the of the quarterback extreme strategy. And I'm like. Of course, of course, that's where it, you know, that's where it goes, uh, where it doesn't work. Um, so, <laughs> so that you guys are able to point to it and say, see, see what I mean? But it, it, it really was, it was, it was that it was, there were a lot of players in that league who were trying to block me from quarterback extreme and it didn't, it didn't work. I mean, I still just, because this is what I'm going to do kind of regardless of what everyone else does. You know, I, and, and kind of to your point, it doesn't, it doesn't work in your favor to try and react to what I'm doing. Like, that's when I know that I've got you, you know, but in this case, uh, there were, there were some who tried to block me from quarterback extreme. So I had that working against me, but then I, I, there were also people there were, there was you and there was Rocky who just had your own strategies and you just drafted based on, you know, what you were already going to do. And it meant not reacting to what I was doing. Just kind of, you do your thing, I do my thing. And it worked. Like that was, that was the strategy that ended up uh, being most effective against quarterback extreme. Yeah. And I think the, and I think part of the reason why it, and it's not that I don't agree with quarterback extreme, but I think that, I mean, and you can even, um, you can share this. I'll send you the tweet, but the last two years it's been rough and it's been rough because I think we're at a point right now in the dynasty landscape where I go down the top and in Deshaun Watson aside, cause I think he's a true wild card, but assuming he gets back on the field, I think his, his place in, in dynasty kind of just goes right back to where it was, you know, that he, he's already shown that he's that good. So he's kind of a wild card, but really I go down the quarterback landscape right now and the top seven, eight, nine guys. And you can even throw like Matt Stafford in there for as long as he plays. I mean, you can probably still throw Aaron Rodgers in there, Kirk cousins, Derek Carr, like he, it's a very stable top end right now in dynasty at the quarterback position. Now, obviously there can be small changes, but I don't think we've ever had a landscape where it's been kind of this locked in at the top. Yep. And part of the reason is if you look back at the, the last two years, uh, so I've talked a lot about warp or war, however you want to, however you want to put it, but really 
there has been a distinct advantage in having two of the top 12, top 10, top 14 quarterbacks the last couple of years. That has been the dominant quarterback strategy. You really have not been able to keep up if you're starting two lower-end QB2s. Even if you have four of them or five of them, it's been really, really hard to keep up with that strategy just because the, the advantage, I mean, if you're talking about two top six quarterbacks last year, you were talking about more than a win and a half above replacement at that position. If you have two of those guys per position. So if I have two top six quarterbacks, I'm basically getting an extra three wins a year in a dynasty season just by having those two top quarterbacks the last couple of years. Compare that with if I was starting two QBs that are like 18 or lower, Yeah, I'm getting maybe an extra win combined with my two quarterbacks. And I know you've talked about it when you have the way to combat maybe a weaker quarterback room at the top is to have multiple options, which mm-hmm. I think is, is there is some viability to that. But then it's going to come down to, you know, how often do you make the right decision in terms of who you play? And even if you're able to nail, you know, let's say you can stream your way because you have four QB twos on your team. You can stream your way to an average of a QB 10 finish on a given year. Mm -hmm. You still are behind the eight ball when you're talking about these guys at the very, very top that are literally scoring double at QB five, what QB 20 is scoring in some formats. So the last two years, it, it has been rough. And we've also seen the last couple of years where the bottom, like, I don't know, eight to 12 quarterbacks in dynasty, they get reshuffled every year. Yeah. And so I'm sure there's been some QBX teams where you've thought you were pretty solid, solid at QB four, QB five. And then you go the next year and you go, Oh, these guys aren't even starters, <laughs> which, which is, and this is what I wanted to ask you because I've listened to your content for years and yeah. I've, I've sat there, you know, listening to what you're saying, I'm going, man, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work, but I know where you're coming from, Yeah. but the landscape has now shifted. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people are taking the approach of, Hey, do what I can to get two studs. I take the approach if I'm going to do that. And if I find myself, let's say I have a team where I just happen to have two attack of Iola as my third quarterback. Okay. But I also have Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. My strategy is I'm really trying to thin down my margins. I'm not anticipating that Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson are going to miss any games. So I'm looking at it going like, man, if there's ever a bump in market value for Tua, I'm going to trade him. You know who I'm going to trade him to, John? The team that thinks they need Tua. Yeah. Because guess what? If I go to your team and I go, oh, hey, John, you need a quarterback. And I know John's probably not going to need a quarterback. He's not going to be one of the tops. It's like, hey, I'm going to desperately trade for a quarterback. Right. But you get one of these guys in your league and you go, listen, I have Lamar and Patrick Mahomes, but I also have Derek Carr. I also have Tua. You want to trade for him? Okay, sure. And I look at this guy's quarterback room and all he has is Carson Wentz. And then maybe he had Ben Roethlisberger. So he's one of these that's like year to year trying to find another guy. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. I, I'm fine trading away. Even 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 if it's like Matt Stafford is my QB3 or Aaron Rodgers is my QB3, I will be willing to bet if I can get that guy's future first, I'm now trading him basically lower warp value than what, like he's trading into a landmine. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. Because he now has to beat me with the inferior quarterback that I'm trading him. Mm -hmm. And so if I can ever trade away like my QB3 or my QB4, I will trade for the market value if I have them insulated with one of these elite guys. And I'm willing to do that as long as this data stays the way that it has been the last couple of years, where the, the wins above replacement for having the elite quarterbacks is so much higher than trying to stream with a bunch of QB2s. So if I ever see it's a point where I can trade a QB2, I will. And that's my question for you is, have yeah. you noticed because of this theme, you get in a startup right now, if we did another startup right now in, in like we, we did the Tecmo startup again, mm -hmm. I bet you five guys in that league would be trying to get top 10, top 12 quarterbacks. Yep. People would be, everyone would be trying, like what I did last year. And I think uh, Justin Rogers did it too. He traded and got two top six quarterbacks, but two of us did it in one draft. Yeah. I bet you there'd be five or six people trying to do that. I think right? so. Yeah. Yeah, and, for sure. And so then what does that do to the market of these now kind of like has been quarterbacks? Have you noticed that when, if you're trying to trade the Ryan Tannehills of the world or the Carson Wentz's there, there just isn't a market for those anymore in a lot of leagues. And partially that is, I think smart because if a team sees that three or four teams have two elite quarterbacks, why the hell would they give up a first to trade for QB 20? Yeah. When they're all, I mean, they have to have such a stacked team at everywhere else to beat you with Carson Wentz and Ryan Tannehill, it actually make it makes more sense for them to say, okay, I should probably just punt 2022 and hope that I can hit on next year's, you know, Justin Fields. And he's actually good. Yeah. That's a better bang for your buck than chasing your tail, trying to go against some of these super teams that already have, you know, Justin Herbert and Kyler Murray. Like that's going to be really hard to beat if those guys stay healthy and the trend continues how it is. So I think that's what I wanted to ask you. Have you noticed that like it's kind of the haves or have nots at quarterback? And there's some middle ground guys like where people are willing to trade for Tua and trade for Derek Carr and trade for Kirk Cousins maybe. Yeah. But that's because yeah. like their outlook for the next year looks decent. You know what I mean? But go try to like sell Aaron Rodgers. Go try to sell, you know, Mac Jones. Yep. And people are just like, oh, no, I'm good. And yeah. to, to the point where you're like, I'd might as well just keep them. Like, <laughs> you know, like, but yeah. have you noticed that mid tier quarterback market is kind of dead? It's like the haves and the have nots. And then maybe there's some of the have nots that might get artificially booped, bumped up because of the market. But then yeah. like, it, it's tough trying to trade like the low end QB twos. There's just no market to the point where you'd rather go QBX and just collect them all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is part of where the strategy kind of comes into play is the fact that you know you're there. There is some value to having those guys on your roster, um, you know, kind of regardless of what their their trade value looks like at the time. But it, like, I, I, so I've definitely seen that happen. I mean, I know that there's uh, there's actually kind of a lot of celebration out there right at the moment over the fact that you know the longtime steadfast rule on on quarterbacks in Superflex was if they're a starting quarterback in the NFL, they should be worth an immediate first round pick, you know, and that's kind of, that's kind of gone out the window. Like who's going to give a first round pick for Davis Mills right now. And that's a young quarterback. We just know that, you know, it's still not a, a, a very stable long-term outlook for Davis Mills. 
you know, certainly guys like Matt Ryan, you're, you know, you're not, you're not going to get a first round pick for Matt Ryan right now, even though you should. Um, but you know, it's, it just kind of the reality of both the, the quarterback position right at the moment, the quarterback landscape and the fact that 2023 rookie picks have achieved max value a year out. <laughs> and now we're kind of starting on 2024 picks and they're already getting close to, to full value two years out. We're like, we're, we're kind of on that track at this point. The problem is, and this is, this is just kind of like a meta, uh, uh, like a meta view of, of dynasty. <clears throat> and we just, when I say we like the Royal, we, we are always chasing what just happened and we should be looking around corners. We should be recognizing trends. We should be recognizing the cyclical nature of this game and of this sport that this game is based on. We should be saying, <clears throat> you know, that right now here in 2022, we can identify, you know, probably about 16, roughly half the league, half of the NFL has starting quarterbacks <clears throat> that they're likely committed to beyond 2022. And that is way down from where it's been in the past. And, it, you know, as, as a result, where the, the reaction should be, you know, the, penal, the pendulum is going to swing back the other way here. Eventually, we're going to end up with, you know, back at the saturation point that we were at just in 2020 where every single team has an NFL quarterback to a point where Cam Newton had all of one suitor. And so he had zero leverage with the New England Patriots. He had to just sit back and wait for them to, to make an offer and then take whatever it is because there were no other jobs available to him. We'll get back to that point eventually. We're just not there right now. We weren't there in 2021. Um, and now all of a sudden... You know, we've got several quarterback positions that look very unsettled in the short term. It's not going to stay that way for very long. And so to me, there there's an opportunity. Uh, you know, obviously the the older guys aren't necessarily going to be the 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 path to this, but um, you know, guys like uh, I mean, I think that Jalen Hurts is a is a good example of this. Somebody who, you know, people feel like he doesn't have a whole lot of job security. But, I mean, you look around the NFL and say, if Jalen Hurts isn't starting for the Philadelphia Eagles, he's going to start for somebody. You know, you kind of say the same thing with, uh, to me, Jared Goff is another great example of this. If he's not starting for the Detroit Lions, he starts somewhere. So, you know, you uh, to me, it's a it's a great time to start picking up some of these guys who very well could solidify a position, um, solidify a starting job within the next couple of years for the next couple of years. And, you know, right now where it feels like everything's kind of in flux, you can you can go get, you know, you can get Jimmy Garoppolo for next to nothing and then he's going to end up as a starting quarterback. You can get Sam Darnold with the last pick in your draft. And, you know, there's a good chance that he ends up as a starter in Carolina, uh, but it's for one year, you know? So there's, there's an opportunity to start 
going after those guys. Mac Jones is is kind of a good example of this. There's there's so little upside to Mac Jones, but the value is in the fact that he's got that job locked down for the long term. And when all of this instability finally settles and we reach that saturation point at quarterback again, Mac Jones is going to be one of the guys that that kind of solidifies the position for you, you know, where you were, you were able to just kind of piece it together in the aggregate. You're not going to be able to do that much longer. You know, eventually we're going to have those positions kind of settled. Well, I think so. I do agree with you that there are some quarterbacks out there that have become so devalued that it makes sense to try to pick up some of the shares for them. Like I I like picking up Jimmy Garoppolo shares, especially as it looks like we get closer to the season that he may not start this year. His value will bottom out even further than it is right now. But really why I would buy back into Jimmy Garoppolo is not because I think he's ever going to have value on my roster as a starter. So I think that's where maybe it's a little different. I could go out right now and get a quarterback room of Jared Goff, Matt Ryan, Mac Jones, and Davis Mills. Yeah. I could have all four. I could acquire them at less for all four of them, less than what I would have to pay to get one Matt Stafford or Dak Prescott or someone like that. Yeah. My pushback would be I could have 10 of those guys. I'm never going to be able to catch the warp that I'm getting from the two elite quarterbacks. So there yeah. is diminishing value in collecting as many of those quarterbacks for your team. I think the point you're making, and it's a good point, is if if this market, this mid QB2 market or below, bounces back, mm-hmm. because another thing we're seeing is as more people go with this elite quarterback strategy, I've noticed this in leagues where I have some leagues where we have four or five teams that are holding two of the elite quarterbacks. And guess what? They're not getting moved. Yeah. Someone like me, if I draft Josh Allen and then I trade back up and I take Joe Burrow, I'm not touching that quarterback room. There's very little you could offer me in a trade that would get me to break up that roster construction. That's what this whole episode has been about is I'm trying to build my team this way. So once I've achieved that, I'm not moving one of those guys. It would take a monumental type of deal (laughs) for me to do it. And it probably has to involve me still being able to pivot into comfortable quarterback range. Maybe I go down a tier, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going out of the tier. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what I've seen is when these teams are already built this way, you might have eight of the top 10 quarterbacks parked on four teams. Yeah. And those teams are not trading them. It doesn't matter what you offer them. You, you would literally have to say, I'll give you my roster. And they still right. may not take the trade. So then it becomes, okay, if that's your current league, what do the other eight teams do? Really, the other eight teams really have to be trading in this other QB market that we're talking about right now. So I think there is a viability of if this market does bounce back, as this two elite quarterback strategy becomes more of the mainstream, You're going to see the secondary quarterback market pick up because people are going to buy quarterbacks in that range because there's no other access to them. Mm -hmm. But I want to buy the guys like Baker Mayfield simply because then I can turn around and say, hey, I'm already one of these teams that has a good quarterback room. I found one of these guys at a cheap discount. I'm now going to go kind of sell them to somebody else 
that's going to try to beat my my quarterback room with one of those guys, knowing that they're probably not going to be able to. So I think it's two different things. I love buying the, the low end quarterbacks simply because I can maybe turn around and flip them, but I don't yeah. necessarily want to QBX them. Yeah. I don't want to hold on to them because I think they're going to help me actually win because really the data says otherwise. So that's where I wanted to ask you was like, have you looked at some of your QBX teams and said, okay, there might be, it's a tough, it's a tough market to try to move some of the teams that you have that maybe have like a Tannehill or a Wentz, or they're probably worth more to you keeping to keep Mm -hmm. your QBX build than it would be just to trade them for like a random second round pick. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's, man, there's so much psychology in dynasty. Um, but you know, there's, there's kind of two, two forces working on us here. Um, you know, first of all is, is, you know, getting comfortable with just having those guys on your roster and saying, yeah, like I'm not going to get the type of value that I should get or that I would normally get, you know, that I would have got a year ago. Um, I'm not going to get that type of value for these quarterbacks. So, you know, it's, it really is kind of better to just keep them on my roster, see what happens. And in the meantime, you know, also get comfortable with the idea that, you know, you can stream within your roster. It probably, it, it, it is tough. I mean, when you come up against a team that has Pat Mahomes and Dak Prescott on it, I, I mean, you you can you can outscore that combo with your combo of quarterbacks who are in good matchups but it's hard to do and it's even harder to do when you look at that at that lineup and say all right I've got to shoot the moon here and I don't feel like I can do that with you know with with Davis Mills or with uh you know whatever backup quarterback Teddy Bridgewater even though he's in a great matchup I don't think that he has the type of upside that I need. And so you talk yourself into just rubber stamping your stop your top two quarterbacks. That's that's part of it is somehow you've got to get yourself comfortable with the idea that you know you can create an advantage by taking some risks uh setting your lineup. You know, that's <clears throat> That's that's a big part of it. The other, but the other psychological force, I think, is is going to inflict a lot of people who have who are you know going for a a, a roster build like yours. Um, I don't think that it's going to, uh, you know, to affect you the way that it would affect um, a lot of people. But you know, once you so you solidify those t- those top two quarterbacks. And then you solidify the rest of your roster build. You get this roster build that you feel like is a strong contender. Um, you know, it's it's lean throughout your lineup, and then you've got usable, but you know, um, but you've kind of been trimming the margins on your bench. And then one of the quarterbacks goes down, you know, uh, gets and, and misses a good chunk of the season, if not the entire season. Dak Prescott two years ago, you know, uh, I think that a lot of people would feel like this roster that I've built deserves a, you know, a, a better starting quarterback than what I'm able to come up with on the fly. And, and to me, that's, that's kind of part of it. I, you know, it's, it's insurance in a way it's hedging in a way, but it's like hedging at a high level because, you know, you've, you've 
you've put the time and the the work into building this roster that's ready to go win. You don't want to be derailed by one quarterback getting hurt. You know, and I think, that, like I said, I I don't think that um, that it it would even make you flinch. I think that you've got this process down to a point where you would just keep it rolling. And I think that you would be fine with Baker Mayfield. But I think that a lot of dynasty players would lose one of those top two quarterbacks and freaking panic and start to feel like this roster is being wasted on Baker Mayfield. (laughs) You know what I mean? I I actually think you you hit on an awesome point. Because this is where the fact that I play in 50 plus leagues, I'm able to basically, because I I do have quite a few quarterback rooms where they are Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, maybe I have a third, but a lot of the places where I have a third that is a viable trade piece, I've gone out and tried to trade them as like a landmine to a team that I still think I can beat and get there first. Even though I know right there, I'm trading away a very, very good insurance policy, right? Mm -hmm. Like I actually just made a trade of that. I looked at a team that quite frankly in a league probably can't beat me for two years. And I traded away Kurt Cousins, who is my third quarterback, a very good third quarterback, probably right on that fringe of, you know, the the top 12 warp quarterbacks, right? And so he's an awesome insurance policy. I really could afford some attrition with one of my top two starters. And I actually have Herbert and Kyler Murray on that team. So I'm sitting there with cousins going, this is a a sheer luxury pick, right? I know that is the best insurance the market can probably buy for me. But then I identified a team where I go, man, Kirk cousins. If I trade him, Kirk cousins, he's automatically this guy's best quarterback. So Mm -hmm. I went and traded him Kirk cousins, knowing I'm probably losing a very valuable piece of insurance. But I also got back his 2024 first, which part of that is strategy going like, hey, I'm, I like Kirk Cousins, but there's no guarantee that by 2024, he's helping that guy not bring that draft pick down into the top four or five, right? There's a chance in two years. Yeah. And then I also got back a 2023 second. And I felt that was a pretty strong trade for the mm-hmm. current market in the Kirk Cousins range. Now, I knew that I just gave up a big insurance policy. And so I can do that on teams because I have 50 leagues. I have a lot of QB rooms like that where I have a third quarterback like Kirk Cousins and I've tried to trade them away. And I know mm-hmm. I'm giving away my insurance, which makes me feel a little queasy going into the season where, man, especially I have a couple teams that have just Lamar Jackson and just Kyler Murray. And yeah. I'm like, that that's a little shaky in terms of like guys that could <laughs> miss games with injury, right? You know? Right. Yeah. But I also kind of know that I got 50 plus leagues. <laughs> if if one of those guys were to get hurt and miss eight weeks, that's going to hurt me because I have them on a lot of teams, but it isn't going to completely crush my dynasty season. A yeah. couple of those, I could probably go to somebody and be like, hey, are you willing to trade me Russell Wilson for Lamar Jackson? Maybe I make one or two of those trades. I know I'm probably losing that long term, but I could get out of it at a, at a relatively cheap bailout cost. You know, I could, I could rectify a couple teams, maybe a couple other leagues. I could find another trade where I bail myself out. 
I really only going to take a big loss on a couple of those teams where I just have to eat that QB loss and I refuse to pay John Hogue a first for Ryan Tannehill because I can't get any other quarterbacks. Those are the only leagues I'm going to lose. And in in the scope of my 50 leagues, I'm not going to take a big loss. Now, if you're only in one or two leagues, I can understand Hey, I don't want to just give away my insurance. You know, if I'm only in a couple leagues, I'm in a league I really want to win that's for a lot of money. I'm maybe not going to be as easy in trading away that that third quarterback that I'm keeping as the insurance policy. So I think that's the difference is I'm willing to probably let it ride a little more than others because I'm in a lot of leagues and I I put a lot of money up in different places. So I really have kind of spread my risk out a lot versus. You're you're talking about. There's probably going to be somebody that panics when that happens. You know what I mean? And they yeah. they have to go through you now. So I can see your strategy, and that's probably why I'm a little more insulated, and I'm able to be insulated because I'm in more leagues. And that's just the that's the leverage part, really. Yeah, yeah. This is the part of the the strategy that I've been trying to figure out how to drill down to. It sucks that it took an hour and forty minutes, but um, because this is this is the genius of the portfolio strategy to me. And I mean, it, it, it feels weird again, psychology again, you know, get comfortable with something that feels very uncomfortable to accept, which is that, you know, in a, it, it, if you have that combination of quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray and, you know, Lamar Jackson gets hurt and misses several games and then he gets healthy and then Kyler Murray gets, gets hurt and he misses several games. I mean, that really kind of hurt you in those leagues where that was your combination of quarterbacks. Um, and like, this is kind of the thing that we, that we all think, but don't say when it comes to dynasty, especially when you do get into a lot of leagues is sometimes you end up just giving up on one of your rosters, at least for the season, Yep. you know, uh, and, and that's that, that feels, it feels weird. It feels uh, it feels, I don't know, cowardly or something like the, the, uh, we're supposed to be so testosterone driven that we just want to win every single one of our leagues, even though we know that's not going to happen. But like the, the beauty of it, when you, when you actually embrace that is number one, you know, it, it, it's going to allow you to focus a little bit more, um, I mean, you can you can focus your efforts differently on those leagues, those leagues where you just lost Lamar Jackson for the season. And now, you know, you've accepted that you're not going to you're not going to compete in that in that league. You get to readjust your your focus in that league. You also get to double down on the leagues where you don't have Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray, because in those leagues, the odds of you being a a strong contender just went up just as much as you know in that in that other league where you just lost Lamar Jackson in this hypothetical situation because now somebody else has to deal with that somebody else just got knocked out of contendership because they lost Lamar Jackson and so all of a sudden you know you just turned a 12 team league into an 11 team league somewhere else i i think that is the, one of the best points of this whole show is thinking that way yeah. and trying to find as many places with, and, and I think this is the takeaway. You might be listening to this going, well, I'm only in three leagues. How does this apply to me? Mm-hmm. It necess- It doesn't necessarily apply to you in terms of if that happens to your team, 
you're not going to have the same insulation. You're not going to have the same benefit if you're only in three leagues and you had Kyler Murray in two and he goes down halfway through the year and he's out for the year. You're going to probably sit there and go like, man, that hurt me a lot more than it helped me because I don't have the other leagues that it's going to help me like you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. But I think understanding what is the best odds in a given decision for you at all times, that, that is really what life is about. You know, in in a lot of places in life, how many times do we go, man, it is not very smart for me to take money off the table that I could be paying my rent and put it into my 401k. Yeah. But I know that is probably the plus expected value for me of what I should be doing with that money that I get. It's the same thing like in blackjack. If anyone's ever played blackjack there, blackjack is one of the best games you can play in terms of getting odds in your favor. There are certain times where the odds are in your favor. But if you're a good blackjack player and you're truly sticking to the odds, you might be down $500. You might not have a dime in your pocket. You're on your last chip. You put in $50 in there and you get dealt, you know, a five and a five. And the dealer's showing a six. Well, guess what? You know what you need to do? You you, you either want to, you want to probably split them. And then you want to double down on those hands because the dealer's showing the six. You, you want to put more money on the table, right? You can't look and go, I don't have any money. I don't want to double down. Even though the odds right there are like 60% in your favor to win both of those hands. That's really when you have to make the crossroads decision. Like, do I do I tap John on the hand and go, John, can, can you spot me like a 200 bucks? Or, hey, hold on, dealer. Let me go to the ATM and get 200 more out. <laughs> And it feels like a bad decision at the time. Like, man, I don't have this $200 to go pull out of the ATM so I can split and double down on this hand. But the odds are in your favor. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing. It can go the other way. The odds just aren't in your favor when you have like what you talked about happen. Mm-hmm. And that happened with Kyler and Lamar last year. I think they overlapped. They ended up missing like 10 combined games if you look at their overlap. I mean, that was a disaster. Yeah. But the worst thing you could have done is take a team that you really didn't feel was like right there on the cusp of winning and totally disrupting your whole roster construction just to try to bail that roster out and replace. Yep. Like if I could trade Lamar Jackson and get Dak Prescott, I might take the short-term loss because I think I'm filling that same placeholder with a similar tier quarterback with the injury discount. But to trade away, you know, a guy like Lamar Jackson on an injury for a bunch of pieces, just to try to bail yourself out of a hole. That's when you already know whether you're in three leagues or 50, that is a negative value decision. Yes. So I think that's what you can kind of take away from this. Even if you don't have a lot of leagues, understand what are the plus EV decisions to make and just kind of always have those in the back of your mind. And you know what? I think one thing that we have to kind of remember, and I have to knock myself out of this mode sometimes is dynasty is supposed to be fun. There Mm -hmm. is a period of time, usually during the season, the last half of the fantasy season, where I go, listen, I'm like on vacation. I'm allowed to spend a little frivolously. So if I make a move that's just like, hey, that's a gut feeling move. I know I probably shouldn't give up a first round pick for that guy, but you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. I'm having fun. Yeah. Like there is a small time during the year where I think it's appropriate to do that kind of thing. But just understand the times when you're doing it and acknowledge, hey, I'm making a, a negative value bet here. And if I lose, I'm not going to complain like it didn't go my way. I knew it was a bad value bet when I made it. So I think that kind of just articulates, like just understand what are the good bets and what aren't and just generally follow that. Even if you're only in five leagues, you know, I, overall, that'll make you a better player. And honestly, it'll make you want to join more leagues, quite frankly. Yeah. 
that might be the 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 genius of this entire thing just kind of embodied right there is that uh i it's it's a it's a reason to uh to join more leagues and try more strategies and um you know and 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 just start to uh it just diversify and and you know kind of again maximize your winnings so um man like i i still had other stuff that i wanted to get to we've taken up way too much of your time already um but that Maybe we'll do just, a part two down the road sometime that's that's what i'm weeks thinking. or a couple months or something like that i'm down yeah that's what i'm thinking this this just needs to be uh a regular occurrence um, now that we, uh, now that we broke the seal on the first one, now we can, uh, just make this, just get you in as a, just a regular part of the rotation here on the super show, because seriously, yeah, I like, we could just, we could talk strategy forever. And this is everything that I wanted. Everything that I needed. Scott Connor was talking strategy, getting back to strategy. We finally get away from the NFL draft finally can stop talking about these rookies. Cause this rookie class is God awful. We can finally move past that. We can finally get back to talking strategy, stop talking roster builds. And I just could not think of a better person to, uh, to get back into this and um, to talk strategy with. So man, it, I just really appreciate your time. And like I said, we've got to do it again very soon. Yeah, man. Anytime. Uh, happy to come on. I love chopping it up with you. You're a very gracious host. Uh, you challenge me with some of the questions and, uh, I know I can be long winded sometimes, but, um, you know, it's a developing process to be able to, you know, it's all in my brain, but being able to articulate it on the airwaves, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to just kind of like free talk and love the discussion. Love to do it again. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's one question that I did want to ask, uh, that, I think that it's important to get to here. Is there anything out there, whether it's a podcast episode, a written article, anything that's kind of evergreen on the strategy that people can kind of um, use to to uh, fill in any voids that we left here? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of different resources that you can look back. Uh, some of the people that have shaped the way that I have thought, uh, Sean Siegel with Rotoviz. Uh, he's been he's been doing this for a really really long time. Um, I'm I'm not affiliated with Rotoviz or anything. I mean, honestly, they are they're a DLF competitor, quite <laughs> frankly. Uh, but he's somebody that has been doing this for a long time. So if you kind of just absorb some of his content, uh, it, it's kind of vainly referenced in everything that he does. Uh, so him, Adam Harstead from Football Guys is another one that's been doing this for a long time. I mentioned Jordan. Uh, I don't agree with Jordan on everything. But I think he has a process that is backed with a lot of data that you can kind of say, okay, this gives me a template of what I want to go try and then see how it works for you. You know, I, I think coming up with, it's not just one person. So I think there's a lot of different tools. DLF has a lot of different tools that if you want to implement some of these things, you can easily input data and say, okay, this is going to kind of guide me along. This is, I've already set the parameters. They're going to help me achieve it based on all the tools that they have. So I think it's really just thinking about a lot of these things and there's so many different things, different positions, different strategies. I mean, we haven't even gotten into like different formats. Yeah. You know, one thing I've been diving into is I don't, John, I don't play best ball dynasty. Yeah. Okay? Me either. Yeah. But there's people that play best ball dynasty. And if you really think about it, the way we would build teams where we are carrying, 
you know, 10, 12, 15 backup running backs. A lot of those guys on a weekly basis are scoring three points, four points. They're only really scoring in your lineup when they, when they start, right? Yeah. You don't really want those on a best ball dynasty where you have every player potentially firing in your lineup. You know what I mean? It's almost the opposite. Right. And I've never thought about it that way, but I'm going like, man, you know, the, these wide receivers that I'm never going to know when to start, but they have two 20 point games in a season. Those actually make some sense in a best ball league, whereas drafting every third string running back really doesn't. So I yeah. think it's a totally different game that we don't really respect based on that. That simple change could totally flip your roster construction. Yeah. So I think things like that, that just are so nuanced that you really just have to drill down to your format and, and figure out what you like to do. But no, there's, yeah. I, I, we could do a whole show on like kind of where I've built my foundation of stuff. Maybe we'll talk about that next time a little more. Yeah, we'll do that next time. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I th- I've always thought that would be kind of fun actually to do just a, a, a whole episode just on best ball whole episode, just on auctions, you know, whole, whole episode, just on bankroll stuff like that, <clears throat> you know, because, uh, like people try and, and just kind of touch on it, just kind of brush it with a feather, uh, th- you know, on an episode where they just jam a bunch of stuff in. And I think that it would be, uh, it would be really useful to a lot of people to just focus on one thing and just hammer it, you know? Um, so we'll have to do some of that too. We'll have a, we'll have a, uh, a, a set agenda each time, um, that we can get to as well. But, uh, either way, man, it's like I said, I just, I just really appreciate the conversation. You can keep up with him at Charles chill FFB on Twitter. Uh, he's on the, uh, the mannequin chill podcast, um, or the, uh, video cast on, uh, DLF's YouTube channel. Um, there's a dynasty and chill podcast and, uh, trades in five. Is that a video or is that a podcast or is that some of both? So trades in five is a YouTube channel. Uh, okay. and we just, we do a lot of this content. It's, it's a lot of strategy content. It's a, there's, it's a mix uh, of different stuff. So, I mean, check that out. It's a, we've been growing the channel, Shane and I, and, um, another one of our friends, Clay Mosley, uh, has really been the driver behind that. He basically came to Shane and I and said, you know, Hey, you guys want to do this trades in five show. And of course you, you've had Shane on your show many times and it, it was supposed to be literally dynasty <laughs> trades in five minutes, which is now morphed into, Oh, Hey, they're hour, they're half hour long episodes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just check out that if you, if you consume YouTube content and I will say to answer your question, we do, I do have a Patreon channel. It's mm-hmm. mostly for portfolio players, but I've been running a series called DNC basics. So dynasty and chill basics. Nice. And I really drill down to some of these basic templates that I've talked about. It's yeah. so like that, that is something that a lot of people have signed up for. And it's literally just a series of podcasts. They're about a half hour each, but I'm talking about like one very specific thing, like hero running back, wide receiver threshold, positional value. Like, and so it does give you a little bit of a foundation uh, if you like what you heard tonight. So yeah, it's patreon.com slash dynasty and chill. You can find that. That's perfect, man. That's worth it. That's, that's teaching, teaching people to fish right there. That's, that's what exactly. we need. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's what so many people are looking for as well. Like it's not, again, it's not about the names. The names aren't important. I mean, we all have, have our takes on who, you know, which players are going to be breakouts and which players are going to be busts. And, and, you know, you can get that from literally any podcast, but the ability to, you know, to, to get this shared wisdom 
from somebody who spends so much time thinking about this stuff and perfecting this stuff um, and the ability to see, you know, how he views the world to me is, is invaluable. So yeah, highly encourage that. Um, Scott's a, a, just a great follow anyways, but yeah, definitely. Uh, if you've got, if you get the opportunity to learn this strategy from him, uh, you know, you, you do it. That's, that's my opinion. Yeah. I mean, you teach people how to fish and then they can take their fishing skills and take it to a river, an ocean, a lake, whatever, catch what they want, eat what they want. Exactly. I mean, I, that's, it. that's a great analogy with the, the teaching people how to fish. Cause then once you learn that you, you can pick the players you like, you know, you, you can do whatever yeah. you like with the players and who you draft and who you trade for and stuff. That's uh, I don't think that's what you and I's we're, we're not the ones in the community to come to say, we're the best at picking players. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so go, there's other places with that, that specialize in that stuff. So I, I steal their information, you know, as much as you do. Yep, exactly. Thanks again for the time, Scott. Always. Uh, it's always fun. And like I said, we'll do it again very soon at Charles chill FFB. Let's wrap it up there for the week. Subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already subscribe to the DLF family, of podcast mega feed uh, and do us a huge favor and rate and review the show. Uh, it helps me to get out to more people and touch on more topics that are useful to you, my super friends. Get at me on Twitter, ask Superflex Show. Even better, ask Superflex Dude. Um, hit me up individually. That's uh, you're, you're a lot more likely to get a prompt response that way. This episode was dedicated in loving memory to James the Brain Catullus. Thank you to DLF for the platform. Thank you to Heart and Soul Radio for the music. And above all else, thank you for listening. And until next week, stay sexy and super flexy.